which is my usual intention when you do an outdoor service, you get you want to be a little bit more chill, you know, a little bit more relaxed. I timed it perfectly last time uh, that uh, we went through uh, the feeding of the five thousand. It was spitting after we had a meal afterwards, and you know, this week uh, the passage that we fall on is on uh, on marriage and divorce and about wealth and all these things and. You know, with what went on in the news this last week with the Supreme Court, I thought it's too heavy of a topic, so let's just skip it. That's what I decided. We're just going to skip Mark chapter 10, and we'll just go to Mark 11. You know, it's, I can't do that, can I? I can't do it. You know, you know, this is the problem with um, doing expositional preaching, which is like preaching through the Bible, is that uh, sometimes you get to passages that are difficult and are hard. And uh, they are sometimes things that you don't always want to talk about. And especially with what went on this week and with this topic about marriage, these things coming together, it is a fitting topic but a heavy topic. So I want to illustrate something to you uh, before I begin. And here it is. So uh, let's say I um, say anyone came up to you and uh, said to you, I'm... With this pink wig on, uh, I need direction somewhere. Now, if they said that to you, the first thing you'd be thinking about is probably not the directions, but probably the pink wig. And as much as uh, they, you're telling them directions and talking them through it, what you will probably remember about the person is the pink wig that they're wearing. I think it's the same way in this passage we're going to talk about today. Jesus is going to talk about some heavy topics when it comes to wealth and when it comes to divorce. And many times what some people are only going to see is the pink wig. All they're going to see is those issues. Rather than, I think, is Jesus is trying to give us directions about what it means to follow him. So the idea today, I'm going to start off with it right away. I'm not going to wear this pink wig the whole time. I guess I could illustrate the point, but no. Um, is this, what keeps me, others, you, from following Jesus? What keeps me, you, others, from following Jesus? I think the thing is, is this, uh, uh, Pastor is going to point out three things. One, when we come to Jesus with our traps and our rules, when we come to Jesus with our status, and when we come to Jesus not willing to give up, our prized possession or possessions. So let's look together in the passage. It's Mark chapter 10. You can look there with me. It's in the latter part of that Bible. It's probably five-sixths of the way through, about that much. 845 in um, the ESV Bibles that we have. Let's pay attention as we read God's Word. Again, this is a heavy topic. I encourage you, I'm only going to bear with you for 30 minutes. So let's try to focus as much as the distractions are around us on God's Word and what He has to say to us. And He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to Him again. And again, as was His custom, He taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test Him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. 
And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brother, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is to instruct us, to teach us. Lord, I just pray that we would be able to hear from it today, that we would be changed by it, and that we would live out a life according to what you've done for us. Pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, again, if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Mark. And uh, the reason we have big chunks of the book of Mark we read is because we're trying to go through the book of Mark from March all the way to the beginning of September, the whole thing. And so we're trying not to skip anything. And here uh, we've seen that the first eight chapters talk about this. Who is Jesus? But the last eight chapters focus on this. What is his purpose? What is he here to do? And... Another emphasis that's in these last eight chapters is, what does it mean to follow in Jesus' footsteps? What does it mean to follow in what he is going to do? 
And throughout chapter 8, all the way to the end of the book, we see the disciples seem to be the main characters in the story. The ones that Jesus is trying to show them, what does it mean to follow me? Now here, the disciples are not the main characters in this story. They're not the ones being talked about when he's dealing with the Pharisees first, and then he's talking with the children, and then the rich man. The thing is, the disciples are always in view. Because what Jesus is trying to say is to the disciples, look how these people come to me. Look how these people approach me. This is the way I want you, or not to do, to follow me. So that is what Jesus is trying to do. Show them through these three stories what it means to follow him. Again, like I said, how are we going to follow Jesus? And we're going to see with the first story what happens. Shall we look to it together? So look at chapter 10, and you're going to look at verse 2 first. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There's something about Jesus that's interesting. Uh, um, Who likes Back to the Future, right? Uh, Yeah, Back to the Future, yeah. Or Eight Seconds, that movie, Eight Seconds, that's a movie that time travel... Who likes time travel movies, no matter how confusing they might be? Um, Things in time travel movies are the people that travel in time and know what's going to happen, all those kind of things. They just have this idea of getting to the point quickly because they know what's going to happen. They've got to fulfill a goal. So as much as these other people that they're talking to don't understand, these time travel people do understand. So this becomes the interesting thing about Jesus. I'm not calling Jesus a time traveler, but I think he is fully God, and he is fully man. So at one point, being fully man, he communicates in our language. He has our body. He works in our ways. But at the same time, when he's fully God, he is, understands all time. He knows our inner thoughts. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows what's inside. So you see the way that Jesus talks to people. He gets right to the point, doesn't he? Or tries to ask questions to get to people's hearts. So you see that with how he talks to the Pharisees, how he talks with the disciples, how he talks to this rich man. That Jesus asks questions and talks in a way that might be different to us. and like, wow, that's a weird way of communicating. But it's a way to get to the issue quickly. So how does he do this with the Pharisees first? Well, you see that the Pharisees, as the commentator point out and Mark points out, it, they are trying to trap Jesus, to trick Jesus into this question that they're asking. Now, like today, marriage and divorce was a hot topic. It was a big topic back then. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the different re- Jewish religious leaders, they debated about divorce. The thing is, most all Jewish you know, followers believe that divorce was okay. But the question is, what are the parameters in which you can get a divorce? And this is the debate that the Pharisees want to bring Jesus into. So how are they trapping him and tricking him? Do you guys remember how John the Baptist was arrested? Why was he, did he get arrested? He got arrested because he told Herod and Herodias that their marriage was not good because Herodias divorced Herod's brother to marry Herod. So what happened was John the Baptist, because he said these things, got arrested. And then when Herodias finally got her wish, he got beheaded. So here, the Pharisees are saying, well, maybe we can put Jesus in the same trap. 
here's a guy that has many crowds. People are hearing and following him. Maybe if he comes strict on divorce, if he says something really harsh about divorce, Herod will get him, and he will fall in the same trap as John the Baptist. So, trap one, he's harsh on divorce. Now, if Jesus is lenient on divorce, the Pharisees are going to say, if you're lenient on this, what I'm going to do is this. You are outside of Scripture. We are going to trap you about that. So you can see that Jesus is being trapped between two ideas. And so what does he do? How does he respond? Well, he gets to the heart of the matter. He says, I want you to see that there is a greater value that you're not getting. You are focusing on what happens at divorce. I want you to focus on the benefits and the glory of marriage. If I could put it in an analogy, it'd be like this. Let's say uh, Perry wanted to learn how to fly a plane. Perry wouldn't learn how to fly a plane by following the directions of how to make a crash landing. If Terry wanted to learn how to fly a plane, he would learn about flying a plane, not the directions on how to crash the plane or what you do when the plane is going to crash. So here Jesus is saying, I want you to focus on marriage, not on just divorce. And what he does, he goes back to creation. He doesn't just go back to the laws and Moses and those things, but he goes to back to the original design of marriage. God made man, male, made humans, male and female. And then he put them in a situation that they would be united, one flesh, and this is a good thing. God has ordained this. He's put this together, and what he has put together, let no one separate. I think marriage is a, um, <clears throat> it's a sign of the Trinity, right? A sign of God himself, relationship. God is in relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three as one. And God wants us to get a view of what that relationship is. What it means to live with someone and love one other person well in an unconditional love relationship. And when we live in that kind of relationship, we get a better view of who God is, His character, His holiness. So marriage is good. It's a good thing to show us who God is. <clears throat> Jesus is not just concerned about loose threads on a wedding dress. Jesus wants us to concentrate on the dress. He wants us to see the glories of it, the goodness of it. <clears throat> okay. Um, I've realized that marriage and divorce, and this topic of marriage, is a hot topic nowadays. And uh, when I was out talking to different people in Appleton, um, this conversation came up very quickly. It was almost a litmus test. Where do you stand on marriage as a church? Where do you stand on the hot topics of the day when it comes to marriage? In fact, some of you um, maybe wonder that too about our own church. Where do we stand as a church on this topic? 
what do we believe? Now, the thing is, uh, being Presbyterian, I've realized people can go all types of way. People, I, we leave people kind of scared. What do Presbyterians really believe? So some people might think I'm way off to the right. Some might, people think I'm way off to the left. So I'm supposed to tell you now, right? Here it is. Here's my chance to tell you. Well, let me get this first before we get to litmus test, okay? This is a question I got last week. This person, we sat down, we were talking, and they asked me this question. Well, what kind of Christian are you? Are you that anti-gay Christian? Are you that one that believes the Bible is actually true? Is that what kind of Christian you are? So this is the question that comes to me. So how am I supposed to respond, right? What am I supposed to say? Maybe you. I don't know. If you're at the workplace, friends, Facebook... This conversation is there, is it not? What is your view on homosexuality? What is your view on marriage? What do you think? It is a topic that we all come to. And so the litmus test comes. Well, what kind of Christian are you? So this is how I responded. I said, I'm the kind of Christian that believes this. I believe that God came to earth as Jesus Christ that this man lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. Now, if you can believe in that, and follow me in believing that premise and that idea, those other issues should be inconsequential. If you can believe that first, those other issues will fall into line. And that is the same thing Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. They're tricking him right away. He wants people that will follow him. But instead, the Pharisees are into trapping, into tricking. They don't want to talk about who Jesus is and what he is supposed to do. Instead, they're into this. I want to know where you stand on these issues. And I will nitpick at the issues that you stand on so I can avoid having to actually follow you. Does that make sense? Okay. And, you know, when you usually have those conversations with people and say, you believe that God came to earth, he was a man, he lived perfect, he rose from the dead, then how, then the conversation is, well, the Bible, that's just, that's easy compared to that. But that's the basics of Christianity. The thing is, then I get it from the other side. Those that say Christianity is a bunch of rules. Then it said, to follow Jesus means to follow X and to follow Y kind of rule. I got this recently. I um, applied for a job, and on the job it asked them questions, just one word, and I had to respond in one word to each of them. So there was smoking and drinking, homosexuality, premarital sex, all these things, and then I had to give one word explanation to each one of them. So uh, next to smoking, I put peace. And next to drinking, I put joy. And next to homosexuality, I put love. So the guy that interviews me is this really big African-American dude, okay? And I'm a little intimidated, first of all. And he gets to this section of the, the application interview, and he goes, Son, what, what are you thinking here? What's going on? What are you saying? He said, I know, I, said, I think I know what you're trying to get me to say. Wrong, 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 sin, sin, sin. I want to look at the positive of this. You know, I'm not bashing smoking, but 
God offers something greater than smoking. He offers his peace. I'm not bashing drinking. I drink. But God offers something better than just drunkenness. His joy. So you see what I was trying to show is there is a greater law. There is a greater thing. And that is what Jesus is trying to show these Pharisees. You just want to look at the rules. I want you to see that there is glory in marriage. I want you to see the positives of it. And when you see that, that is what truly motivates people to change and to be different. And to actually follow me because I'm a desirable person to want to follow. But then it goes on. How's everyone doing? You doing okay? Are we, are we exhausted yet? Are you okay? Okay, you're doing good. We're almost there. I know it's outside. I know it's hot. And then Jesus, he goes with his disciples, right? And then he tells them what he, he really thinks. And I think this is fitting because I think he's saying, okay, the disciples can handle what I really want to say. They're not going to jump on me. They want to follow me so I can be able to tell them what I really think. So you see, Jesus, in that kind of setting, can be able to give what he believes the law should be. Jesus doesn't hate the law. He came to fulfill the law. And I think I have opened up Pandora's box, have I not? Talking about homosexuality. And when I talk about homosexuality, lots of questions come. It's not just a, uh, a theological issue. It's a political issue. It's a psychological issue. It affects each one of us. Some of my very good friends are homosexual. Some of your family members might be. Some of you might struggle with it yourself. All of us are affected by that issue. But I believe, and this is the argument I hear from many people that are in the gay community. They say to me, well, Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. And in fact, all you like to go to is back to Leviticus. Now, again, I'm saying this to you guys as not jumping on it, not the pink wig, okay, right? You're seeing the greater value. Jesus does say something about homosexuality right here. He does say something about what marriage is supposed to be. And he doesn't just go back to Levitical law. He goes back to creation. He says you were made man and female. You have different roles you're equal, but different roles, just like the Trinity, where there's different roles, but equal in essence. In the same way that there is completeness in marriage when men and women come together. Now, does that mean you can't find completeness if you're not married? No. You can ultimately find that in Christ himself. But you can get a view of who God is in that place. So I will say to you, as a minister in the PCA, that I believe marriage is only between a man and a woman. Now, if you want to talk about the political issues and homosexual marriage, I would love to talk about that with you. I think it would be a great conversation. Um, I'm willing to do a theology on tap, and all we talk about is whether gay marriage should be allowed or not. Okay? But within the church, within this covenant community, we say, because this is what God says, this is back to his creation, that marriage is between a man and a woman. But the thing is, when you say that as the church nowadays, people will only jump on that. And that is why I want to say this clearly. That Jesus is saying, I want you to follow me first. If you follow me, then these other things, I think, will fall into line. Don't just see the pink wig. 
see me. Okay, let's go on. That was heavy, okay? Oh, man. I've been, I, I knew I had to address it, so there you go. That's what I would say about that topic. <clears throat> well, it goes on, and uh, uh, he is uh, now uh, with the disciples, and the, the children are coming to him. And uh, again, it's not a very flattering picture of disciples. Uh, the disciples, uh, earlier, just the section before that we read, um, they, uh, Jesus was telling them they should receive others like they receive children. But here, what do the disciples do? They don't receive children at all themselves, do they? They cast them out. And uh, again, like I said, if Jesus had a romantic view of children, that society didn't have a romantic view of children. Instead, what he's showing is not that children are cute and innocent and their character qualities. Instead, he's showing that children are vulnerable. In that society, uh, children were a burden because there's an agrarian society where children were only good for their work. And many times, some of them could not work. So their value really came when they can finally work and help the family. Until then, they're a drain. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, you too are like that. Not that you should receive like that. You are like that. You are vulnerable. You are needy. You have nothing to bring. You should be like these children. Powerless. Vulnerable. Without anything you can bring. Who likes the King's Speech? Anyone King's Speech fans like that movie? So the King's Speech um, is about Prince Albert or Bertie, right? And uh, Bertie has a stuttering problem. And uh, being a prince and having a stuttering problem is a problem, okay? Um, because you have to give lots of speeches. So Bertie tries to find all of these different solutions to being able to speak well. And he goes to all these professionals to do it well. But then what happens is um, he goes to this one man, Lionel. And Lionel um, breaks down Bertie's status. I'm not gonna. You can't just. Tr I'm not gonna talk to you as a king. I'm gonna call you by your nickname, Bertie. And it's actually when Bertie lowers down those levels, when he takes away that status that he had, when he acts childish. Remember the swearing scene, right? When he acts childish, that's when change actually happens in his life. I think it is the same way, but even greater in our our situation. We have a stuttering problem. In fact, we have a worse than a stuttering problem. We have a problem with ourselves. We are broken. We are broken people. And we come to Jesus saying, saying, oh, you know what? I can fix it on my own. We come with our status. But God is saying this. I want you to come with nothing. I want you to come vulnerable. When you do that, then change can happen. See, God ceases being God if we shape Him to what we want and we don't have to give stuff up. God ceases to be God if we shape Him to what we want and we don't have to give stuff up. We don't have to admit, there's nothing I can bring. And then Jesus shows the attitude that people have when they do come with status. When they do say they have something to bring. 
Look with me again, verse 17 in chapter 10. And now he talks about the rich young man. And there's a lot there to unpack. I'm not going to be able to do it all, but I will make this point. Jesus um, says, did you follow these commandments? And he lists some of the Ten Commandments. And this young man says, yes, this rich young man, I have followed all these things. But it's interesting that Jesus does lead out um, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So obviously, the God that this young man has is his wealth. He is not, Jesus is able to look into his heart, look into the future and see that there is something that will inhibit him from following Jesus. And that is his wealth. That is what is greater than Jesus for him. I just admit, it would be hard to be this man that has so much going for him. It's hard for me, for someone to say to me, you know what, you're lacking something. You are lacking something. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. You are lacking something. And this young man, don't tell me I lack anything. Because if I give up all my wealth, then I will lack everything. You can't tell me that. If I give up my wealth, I will lack everything. And Jesus says that is the exact opposite of his message. In fact, when you give up your wealth, you will have everything. I think it's worth saying, nowhere in all of Mark does Jesus use this word agape. He loved him to anyone else but this rich young ruler. And you don't see the visual picture, but the tense of agape, when it's used in uh, Greek language or elsewhere in the Bible, it's talking about an embrace. Okay? So Jesus is actually embracing this rich young man. He is hugging him. And there's a visual picture here. Can you see the picture? that's being taught? Well, Jesus is embracing this man. He's telling him, give up your wealth and cling to me. Cling to this. You will lack nothing as he's embracing him. The rich man thinks, again, if I give up everything, I will have nothing. Jesus is trying to tell him, if he gives up what he cannot keep, he will gain everything. Um, there's a book that just came out, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. Have anyone heard that book? Have anyone heard that book? Rosaria Butterfield uh, was a former um, English studies professor at Syracuse University and uh, was an open lesbian. And uh, the book is about her conversion. She was adamant about homosexuality and uh, was very uh, strong on her opinions of it. And uh, through the shepherding of a church and loving her, she, um, through a long process, came to a place where she gave up her tenure at Syracuse and became a Christian and left her lover and, uh, and ended up becoming a Christian. And uh, there was an interview with her uh, at Patrick, Patrick Henry College, and a question was asked her, what would you say to Christians about homosexuality? What would you say? And she tells a story. Please hear this. I encourage you to hear this part. She said, one day I I came to church, and I was with some of these Christians, and I said to them, I said, I left my girlfriend to be here today. I left her to be among you. 
What did you have to give up to be here? Don't tell me it's PG-13 movies. Don't tell me it's some homeschool curriculum that you didn't like. What did you have to give up to be here? And this is what she heard. She said, I had no idea Christ would ask me to give up so much, they said to her. That he would ask me to bury a child. That he would ask me to give up drinking. That he would ask me to give up my wealth. That he would ask me to give up this and that. And Rosaria, she realized something, and she talked to the audience in this way. She said, we all deal with something. Whether it's lust, faithlessness, sexual sin. And she says, Christian, what did you have to give up to be here? I have a very good friend that's a homosexual. For me to say to them, give it up. Can't you just give it up? Just stop it. It is is part of him. So he says, it is, it is me. That is who I am. And the thing is, look, the good news here in the gospel is this. Is that Christ tells us that we have to give up something too. That it should be painful of us. That we might say things in our own life, it's just part of me. I can't give it up. That's just my personality. That's just who I am. But God says, no, you have to give up something too. Let me land the plane here. Here it is. And then the food, the burritos are coming, okay? That is not good news for the disciples. They do not see this as good news. What do they see? They see this man that has got it all together. He follows the law. He has money. He's the kind of guy we want following Jesus. He's the kind of guy that can make this movement last. He is the one we want to be a part of our team. And now, Jesus, you say that he can't enter the kingdom of God. In fact, as Timmy Schertz points out, it is so great that he can't enter. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And what do the disciples say? This isn't good news. And then he gets the heart of what the disciples, the question that Jesus really wanted. And what do they say? What question do they ask? How can then we be saved? If this can't, person can't be saved, then how can we be saved? And Jesus says this. This is where I wanted you to go. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is the good news. The good news is this. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of us not having things together, in the midst of our problems, in the midst of what we have going on in our life, Things that we think, there's no way that God will accept me. God says, that's right. It's impossible by you, but all things are possible with me. That is the good news. The good news is that Jesus did the impossible. He took on sin himself and died upon the cross so that the possible might happen in our lives, that we might be reunited with Jesus, that we might be able to follow him. The problem is that we think our status, our pet issues, or that thing in our lives 
is good enough to come to Jesus. But he says, no. The only thing you can come to me with is what I did for you. Let me close. I was at Theology on Tap, and I was having a conversation with someone there after the, the talk. And he was saying, well, you know, you say there's something different about Christianity. I just don't know if I can, I can believe that. What do you mean there's something different about Christianity? It seems like you want to do good things so that you can in- inherit eternal life. That you do X, Y, and Z. You do these good things so that you can go to heaven. The very question that the rich young ruler asked. And I turned to this man and I said, no. Christianity is not that way at all. In fact, there is nothing I can do to inherit heaven. There is nothing that I can do to get to God. In fact... It's by learning that God loved me and died for me and did all these things for me. He did the impossible that I could have life, that I respond to Him in good deeds, that I come to Him with my life, that I give up everything in me because how much He has done for me. What do I say to my friend that's homosexual? I say this. I'm not asking you to give up homosexuality first. I'm asking you to give up your life first to Jesus. When you do that, it'll be amazing what he asks you to turn over. That is the good news. Not that we have to have it all together, but we say, I don't have anything together, and then God changes us and transforms us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are gracious. And this is an issue that is not going to go away in any of our lives. We will think that we have something to offer, that we can bring something to you. But God, you show us time and time again that you are all that we have. God, we pray for wisdom as we approach society, people, friends, ourselves, as we deal with wrestling with sin and our own issues in our lives, especially about this tough topic of homosexuality. Give us wisdom and grace and peace as we talk about this with others. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.